there, my name is Shane Craddock and this is the Inner Edge podcast where I share a different take on how to lead and live a sustainable high performance life. Over the course of different episodes, I'm going to challenge the belief that tension, stress and struggle are essential to success and creativity. My experience is that there's an easier way, there's a better way and indeed there's an essential way that we need to explore for the times that we live in. So let's go ahead, let's jump in and explore. primarily reading problems and she said you know you need let's see if this will help them with their constant and chronic headaches and migraines difficulty with depth perception anxiety irritability you know and it broadened the array of what kinds of symptoms and who we could deal with hi there welcome to a very special edition of the inner edge The voice you were listening to there is the voice of a quite remarkable woman. And I want you to consider this question. You know, what would you do yourself if if you discovered something that definitely changes the lives of about 25% of the population, but nobody else seemed to be aware of it? Like, what would you do? Um, And I guess that's what fascinates me about this particular woman. But also there's a very personal side to it from my point of view. I guess in my work, part of my job as I see it, and it's the reason I do this podcast, is to make the unseen visible. And this particular episode is about something that is definitely unseen, and yet it affects also the way that people see and experience life. And it's it's very relevant from my point of view, and I hope it might be very relevant to you or somebody who knows who you know, um, because of what happened to my daughter, Jane. The reason that I became aware of this woman was because of Jane's story and Jane's journey. Um, when Jane was in the last year of primary school, which is the lower school level in, um, in Ireland, and everything seemed to be fine. And then she went into second level school, or in the US, I guess it's called high school. And the jump up in information flow and teaching everything else understandably jumps up considerably. But at that point, it was Jane started to exhibit unusual symptoms. For example, she was getting a lot of headaches pretty much every day, extreme fatigue. Um, As a result, she was experiencing more anxiety. And it was quite clear that she wasn't able to keep up with the flow of information coming at her. And we just couldn't figure out what was going on. We'd had her tested for dyslexia and things like that. um, But nothing was showing up. And everywhere we went... It just seemed like there were closed doors. And finally, we kind of thought, well, maybe there's a, there seems to might be a visual type of element or an issue here. And we got tested with an optometrist who actually said, no, there's nothing wrong. Um, and literally, it was just door closed after door closed. This was about three years ago. Today, uh, Jane, because of the work of this woman, Helen Erlen, Jane was diagnosed um, about two years ago with Erlen syndrome. And in very simple terms, what this means, and I'll let Helen explain this better in this interview, but in very simple terms, it just means that uh, light has different frequencies. And if you've got Erlen syndrome, which quite a few people seemingly do, um, it means that there's a certain frequency of that light that, for example, Jane, her brain doesn't digest. And because it doesn't digest it, it knocks the brain out of sync and so it's a neurological condition. And because the brain gets out of sync, it actually affects the nervous system and the way the person experiences the world, in particular, reading and learning. So we didn't realize it, but Jane um, 
just didn't see the words on the page the way that most people would see them. They would be jumping around the place. They would be have rivers of light flowing through them. But we'll get into that in this interview with Helen Erlen. Just a little bit about Helen. She is a graduate of Cornell University. She's a credentialed school psychologist, a licensed therapist as well. Uh, she's a huge amount of worker working with adults with learning disabilities. And uh, she's an expert in the area of what's called perceptual processing disorders. And while she was working with adults in learning disabilities early on in her career, she made a discovery that resulted in a marked improvement in her students' reading abilities and their learning abilities. And because of this woman's work, there are, well, I'll get into this in the interview, but there are a lot of what are called Erlen testing centers worldwide. And the Erlen method um, is a proven method that makes a difference. But I'm going to say this before we get into the interview with Helen, and she can tell her own story in her own words. Um, the reason I'm doing this podcast is to try and increase the awareness of it. Pretty much 95% of the people that I've spoken to over the last two and a half years have never heard of Erlen, despite the fact that this woman has helped millions of people. Yes, that's right, millions of people. Can you imagine if you, if you, if you, felt, if you realized you were doing that, how great would that be as a life? Uh, but most people don't seem to have heard of it. And so this is my way to try and help increase the awareness of what is an important thing. I mean, when I was growing up in school in Ireland in the 1970s and 80s, dyslexia was not a thing. It was not discussed. It was not, there was no support for it. Today there is. And there was a lot of damage done to people that I knew who were classified as stupid and their self-esteem was damaged. And as far as I can see, this is exactly what's happening with Erlen. It is a real thing. It is the dyslexia of this current time. And I am very keen to make sure that this is recognized by the educational system in Ireland and wherever else abroad, because trust me when I say as a parent, when you see the difference that getting what are called Erlen spectral filters on your daughter's, you know, over, over her eyes and the impact that it makes on her life, and as a result on everything around her, including our family, there's nothing you can say to me that tells me this isn't real. This is 100% real, and this is a real thing. And so <clears throat> we're going to get into an interview here with Helen, and every so often I might just jump out and point a couple of extra things out. So I hope you enjoy it, and please, please, please help spread the word. If it's not for you, it may not be. If it is for you, this will definitely change your life. But if it's not, please share it with at least one or two other people, because it will most likely change their life. Let's get into it. Okay, um, Helen Erlen, you're very welcome to the Inner Edge podcast. Thank you, Shane. I'm delighted to have been invited to talk and share some things with your audience. Great. Well, there's plenty to share. Um, and in very simple terms, I was looking at your organization's website earlier on, and the tagline caught my eye. It had before and I'd forgotten it. And your website obviously is erlen.com. We'll explain, obviously, your surname is Erlen, but it's got a, uh, another significance in the context of what we're going to chat about. But the tagline says, where the science of color transforms lives, which perfectly encapsulates, I think, what we're going to be talking about. Um, because I think over 40 years ago, you made a, a pretty significant, interesting discovery that has resulted in a very significant improvement in the lives of children 
and adults in terms of their reading ability, their concentration, their attention, and, and lots, lots more. It's, it's, it's definitely that the word transform is used, I think, a lot in many cases, in many situations, incorrectly. But this one definitely, I think it lives up to its, to its uh, hype. So, Helen, we're, so we're here, obviously, to talk about Erlen syndrome. So let's start with that as a basic question. What is Erlen syndrome? It is a difficulty for the brain to process accurately visual information. And again, we always think of visual information getting processed by the eye, but only 30% of visual information is processed by the eye. It goes from the eye, it's transmitted as colors or wavelengths of light traveling at different speeds to the back of the brain where you have a visual cortex, which is the largest area of the brain, and that's where it has to get processed. So what we're talking about with Erlen syndrome is that difficulty of the brain processing the visual information accurately. Um, and when, when it doesn't uh, process it accurately, it creates a whole bunch of different distortions that are experienced and physical symptoms. Yeah. So it's a it's a neurologic condition. Totally a neurological condition. It's not so much about the eyes as it wants to do with the brain, as you said, the visual cortex. And obviously, I've heard you say before, and I would agree 100%. Obviously, you know, in terms of trying to get to peak performance or at your best in anything at any age, a healthy brain mm -hmm. is central to all of that. So obviously, I was sharing with you before, the, before we went um, onto this here. But the reason that I suppose I'm curious about it myself is because obviously my daughter uh, thankfully, was diagnosed with Erlen syndrome two and a half years ago, and we've been on a, and we've been on a journey with her. And it has been absolutely shocking to me in terms of just watching the change. Mm -hmm. So, if you you know beforehand, I can understand. And we were talking a little bit about this beforehand about the skepticism of people, but things they don't know, or even things they can't see, or that they've never heard of, that they've never been trained in. But when you see it firsthand right in front of you you know our, our daughter was presenting some of the symptoms you talked about there was, there was fatigue there was headaches there was a difficulty in processing information as she went into secondary or high level school here um and nobody seemed to be able to give us any sort of idea optometrists were were confused so were the doctors the ophthalmologists and when we we eventually discovered this um um, you're probably familiar with it because initially people say, oh, that's colorometry, I think is the phrase. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so she was told, oh, it's colorometry, so we're going to give you red glasses. And mm -hmm. so she wore red glasses, which gave mild relief in the kind of the way that you talked about that the, 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 the word stopped moving. But it wasn't until maybe a couple of months later that my wife, who was obsessed with trying to figure this out, thankfully, um, came across you. And then came across your website and then went, hang on a second here. Uh, and then we went into Facebook groups and we, we discovered that if you get the right color on your lens, so you have these spectral lenses, the person wears these, that color you're talking about from your early students, your, the patient that we you were trying to help. So now you have these spectral lenses, you diagnose correctly. But if you diagnose correctly, it means that you, when she puts on, and for Jane now, it's slightly blue in her glass, just slight blue. But when Jane puts them on, she sees clear. And she sees white as white. She sees white as white. If I put yeah, them on. Not yeah. Mm -hmm. So in actual fact, the red 
was causing more damage <laughs> because it wasn't the correct um, diagnosis at all. So now, as you said, she sees white as white. If I put on her glasses, which are slightly blue, I see white as blue, which is absolutely blows my mind. But what was even more fascinating was, you know, and I think I heard you say this about your patients. And I mean, just for the record, I was looking at some of your stuff on your website. You've helped at least 1 million people. Is that right? It's, I'm sure it's well more than that. Yeah, I think I've lost count. Yeah. I mean, I, we've been doing this for 40 years, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. a lot of clients. Yeah. Well, it's, it's incredible, yeah. And obviously it's not just your patients because you're also then helping the people connected to them. Mm-hmm. So, and that's that's priceless. Certainly, I, I would say that from our point of view. Um, but what was amazing to me with Jane was, and it was quite emotional for our family, was that like, you know, when she put on those glasses, that was kind of the first time that she saw her face properly. It was the first time that she saw our faces properly. It changed her experience of taste. Um, she walked out into the world and, and just sat and looked at trees and leaves because she had depth perception. Up to that point, she apparently saw the world in two, di- two dimensions. And when you see that in your, in, right in front of you, it is beyond, you just can't even put that to words, but you just see the reality of it. And I'm sure you must have very dramatic stories of people that that you've helped. I'm just, I mean, I know you've got like, if you've helped over a million, well, there's no shortage of stories, Helen. So is there any one that's very dramatic that comes to mind for you, somebody you helped? A lot of them. As you were talking in terms of your daughter, I will tell you a couple of stories about um, people we work with where it's changed their environment. I had a professor who worked, Uh, taught students at a college level and came to me and she said, you know, I'm so sad. I don't recognize faces. So when I'm out on the campus, I don't recognize my students when they come up to me to say hello. So she's missing out on so much joy and information of interacting with the students. Um, And when I asked her when she looks at me, what did she see? She said, well, I have a choice. I can either see your nose or I can see one eye or I can see your mouth, but I can never see all of it together. And when we tinted her, she literally cried. So for the first time she saw faces and she saw people as whole. Um, And and it was very emotional for her. Um, This was an area that was important to her and teaching was important. She was gonna drop out because she couldn't recognize her students, which is kind of sad. Um, Absolutely. Gee, there's so many stories that I think. Oh, I'll tell you, some of them are interesting. I had a, a student come in when she was in high school and she was getting C's and not doing well. And so we tinted her and she went from C's to A's. And her brother, who was a very good student, was in law school. And in law school, I don't know if it's the same in Ireland, at the end of your years of study, you have to take the bar exam and you have to pass the bar. And you only have three tries to pass the bar. If you don't pass it, then you can't become a lawyer. And he took it the first time and he failed. He took it the second time and he failed. And so in he marches with his sister on one side and his dad on the other side. And they put him down because he said, there's nothing wrong with me. Um, And said, that's okay. Let Helen see and test you. Um, come to find out that within literally half a page, things started to move so badly for him 
And he got so tired that he would sit there and hold his eye open so they wouldn't close. And that's how he tried to read. Well, at some point, that doesn't work for you. And he couldn't finish what he was doing. So um, I tinted him, and guess what? He passed the bar exam Uh, (laughs) with flying goals a third time. So you can change (laughs) lives. And I think that's the big comment that I get all back from everyone all the time. You've changed my life. Well, you change lives because you make things normal for them, but they don't know what normal is supposed to be. Whatever your baseline is in terms of how you experience things, um, how much effort goes into it, what it's like for you, you assume that everybody else experiences the same thing. Um, and so you know, from, from your experience <laughs> with regards to the the general population, what percentage of people do you think have Erlen then? Um, there's been a lot of research studies. We've pulled off of doing the research ourselves and letting other people do the research, other school districts, um, other universities have done research and we're continuing to do research um, to answer questions like you asked, answer questions like what's happening in the brain. So we're doing brain studies using functional MRIs and spec scans. Um, so we do know those <laughs> questions, answers to those questions. Interestingly enough, it's probably about 30% of the general population and it goes up from there. Wow. And but, you know, not for everyone has the same degree of severity. Yeah. So someone may test out as having Erlen, but they can get by. Um, we really work with those really severe clients. Okay. And that's probably close to 26% of the population. And it doesn't matter whether you've been identified as gifted or a good student or having severe difficulties. Um it, it just but doesn't 26%. Matter. So we're talking about one in four people. Mm-hmm. But yes, it's higher for those. Higher I'm for those. I didn't mean that. Yeah, it's higher yeah. for those that are already struggling and having difficulties. It yeah, goes so up to probably 33%. Yeah, so I, I think my wife was saying to me that um, I think if, if you have dyslexia, there's a higher chance or probability that you might have Erlen. Is that the case or is that wrong? Yeah, it's a high percent that you've been misidentified misidentified or misdiagnosed um, and they've missed the fact that you probably have Erlen. Um, so, okay. because, you know, going way back, as I go way back, the original definition of dyslexia was someone who had problems in terms of seeing the print, the print move, the print dance, the printed, all these things. Well, that's Erlen. And that was the, one of the initial definitions of dyslexia. And in the last know, 10 years, 15 years, it's now gotten co-op by those who are talking about auditory difficulties and linguistics difficulties. And it's, it's not ever one or the other. You want to always look at it with an open mind and say, well, what are all the factors that are impinging upon this person's ability to function easily? And, you know, when you're working so hard at functioning, it affects over the long term your health and well-being. Now, that's scary. It is scary, yeah. And just I'm just looking here um, at the full list of some of the symptoms. So I'll read out some of these and maybe you can add some that 
because I, I just can't get over just all of the the symptoms here that that possibly are related to having mm-hmm. Erlen syndrome. So we've got a sensitivity to bright and fluorescent light and glare, slow or inefficient reading, um, poor attention and concentration, eye strain, fatigue, headaches and migraines, poor depth perception, tiredness, uh, anxiety, irritability, mm-hmm. panic, disorientation, feeling exhausted, um, and then maybe depression. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. So mm-hmm. and we're, ta- and we're talking about one in four people. And what's, what I said to you earlier on was that, you know, ever since we went to, we've gone on this journey with Jane, our daughter, we've been telling everybody about it because we realized that nobody knows about it. Mm-hmm. Yet that's not completely true because obviously, you know, you've obviously helped seven figure people, but in Ireland, certainly um, it it's, doesn't seem to have landed in the educational system because they don't recognize it. Is it recognized in the U.S. yet? In certain schools and certain school districts, Texas is better. They've trained all their quote-unquote dyslexia teacher, teachers in the school system to be trained in Ireland as well so that they can test and identify and then treat them using the colored overlays. Um, but How did you make that happen? Through, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you're working both in the system and outside the system. You're finding people who are in the system who are open and willing to listen. And we have a number of Erlen diagnosticians and screeners in Texas um, who work with children who um, need remedial help, and they pushed it. And they pushed it through the legislature. They showed them the research because we have 40 years of research, the brain research, which is you can't deny the fact when you look at someone's brain and here's a brain that's hot and it's red and it's not functioning in all these various areas pre-Erlen and then tested with their own filters. They have a calm, quiet, relaxed brain. That's pretty dramatic, yeah. Yeah, and you can't ignore as much as you'd like to the years of research that we have. But it's tough. It is very tough to change, especially professionals' minds about things. They've been to school. They've gotten their degree. They know what's going on. And they're not willing to accept something new or be able to say, I wasn't taught that. May this is interesting. Maybe I should explore this further. Um, it's very hard to do that. And then you have your population that doesn't have any Erlen symptoms at all. And so when you talk about them, they can't relate to them. Yeah. So that's another population that you're fighting all the time. Yeah. So. And do you think, from your experience, we're tracking this, as you say, over 40 years, <clears throat> with the advent of computers, you know, growing exponentially in mobile technology um, <clears throat> and the kind of the, the LED screens and everything, have you seen an increase in Erlen? Or any change? Mm, have we seen an increase? That's an interesting question, Sean. Um, I don't know if I can. Not sure. Yeah, I, yeah, I can't say. I will tell you that fluorescent lights have made it increased individuals with Erlen in terms of their own awareness. They're very aware that they cannot handle fluorescent lights. The biggest problem is that for the people who have these problems, they think it's normal. 
Yeah. They don't know what normal is supposed to be like. Um, i tell you an interesting. I was doing a stress test, and the guy who was monitoring me while I was doing the stress test, they said, oh, he'll talk to me, get my mind off of what was happening. And he said, what do you do? And I mentioned, well, we work with people with headaches and migraines and sports concussions and concussions and people who are struggling academically. And he said, oh, he goes, that's me. I played ice, ice hockey since I was eight. I can't tell you the number of concussions and, you know, head injuries I've had. Well, I'm still on my treadmill and I'm going to analyze them. <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> you just pay attention for a minute how you feel. Okay. I said, now go over and turn off the lights in this part of the room where you and I are standing and stop for a minute. Do you feel calmer? I said, yeah. More comfortable? Yeah. Um, more relaxed? He said, yeah. I said, would you like to feel like that all the time? Yes. I just didn't know. I had no idea. And he had been saying to me, oh, I'm all better. I've totally recovered. And I thought, not with that number of concussions, you haven't totally recovered. Wow. So, it, you know, I, that's what we do is we have to show them the difference for them to understand what it should be like for them. But did he get the, did did he get the spectral filters, Helen? No, I can do it with just lighting. Oh, you, you can just do, do it there, right? Yeah, you can do it with lighting in terms of having someone be under fluorescent lights and then get a sense of how they feel. And have them do, a, you know, how's your head feel? How do your eyes feel? How does your body feel? How do you feel? And then dim it all down, turn the fluorescent lights off and dim the room down and see if they're feeling calmer, more comfortable, more relaxed. Um, Okay. That's the population we work with all the time, but they don't. They don't. They don't know to report because that's what it's been like for them, and the assumption is it's like that for everybody. I yeah. had a a child, and when I got to the, you know, then the parent. When I work with the child, the parent is always there, present, gets to touch it, taste it, and see it, and try it for themselves. Um, and one of the questions I asked the child is, "Do you get headaches?" And the child said, "Yes." And mom goes, you never told me you get headaches. And she goes, yes, I did. You told me you get headaches. Everybody gets headaches. Oh, <laughs> oh God. Oh, you that's know, a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. No, because I, I yeah. can very much relate to that because of Jane's story as well, because, you know, it wasn't until she realized, oh, I put on these, I put on these glasses or I put on this color and all of a sudden everything has changed. I thought it was meant to be the other way. <laughs> To, to your point, he's like, oh, wow. And like, what, what were you seeing? And it's funny because I have your book here, which is um, The Ireland Revolution. And it's been very useful as well. But also the, and I know you, you would obviously use this a lot, but it's like, I'm just going to put that up to the screen. Those kind of visual, what would you call those? Those are optical illusions. Optical illusions, right. yeah. Mm -hmm. And just, just when I saw that, I was like, oh, so this is kind of what Jane was seeing. And she was saying, yeah, when I looked at the page, you know, the words would move around, there'd be light flowing through the page like rivers. I'd look up at the whiteboard and there'd be kind of explosions. I wouldn't be able to look at it. Um, and again, she thought it was just normal. And you're kind of going, wow, like, it's just incredible. So um, I'm going to come back to this in a second, but I'm just going to say it right now that if you go to Erlen.com, there is up in the top right hand corner a green button at the moment. It's, it's a very short self-test and there's different tests there for 
different categories, but there's a very short one as well, just to get an initial sense, just in case somebody's watching or listening to this, that they want to just say, well, that sounds like me. Well, that's, I think that's probably the initial place to go, Helen, first, would it? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And obviously, I, I will put the details um, of the organization. And over this side of the pond, I think the person who's helped us the most, that I was saying to Sandy, has been Alan, Alan uh, Penn. And he's mm-hmm. been wonderful, um, very, um, very generous with his time, but also just very, very good at just diagnosing Jane correctly with the right color, which we've realized there is almost like an art and a science to that as well. But getting mm-hmm. that color, you can be a little bit off and that would cause a problem. And to your point, yeah. white has to be mm-hmm. white. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you don't get the benefit of the filtering that we're doing. Okay, so I'll come back to that in a second. Okay, I hope you're enjoying the interview with Helen so far. Again, just for clarity, uh, probably the main and best website to go to is erlen.com, I-R-L-E-N.com. And on that in the top right-hand corner, uh, you should see a big green button. Can't miss it. And just says self-test, I think, or self-check. And you can start with that as a test to see if... I suppose if, if what they're flagging as the main symptoms of Erlen are with you or perhaps a child or a friend. Um, in this next section, I, I suppose, get into asking Helen, how did she discover Erlen? She kind of goes through that process and the story of it. And then also, I, I, I see, I suppose, with, with my own background and my work, I am very curious about how she thinks and how she works. And we kind of start to explore some of that as well, as well as some of the areas that her work has taken her into, including um, people with concussion from sports or concussion in general, autism, dyslexia, and it really is fascinating. Um, So let's get back to the show and we'll just start now with Helen talking about how did she discover Erlen syndrome in the first place? Just so you know, my background is that I come from a research background where I started doing research for National Institute of Health in my sophomore year of college, and then went on to do more research under EJ and JJ Gibson, who were the leading uh, researchers in visual perception. Um, So I had a strong research background, and then I went into um, school psychology. And... As a school psychologist, you do formalized, standardized testing. And most school psychologists, I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but in the US, they see the child just doing the test. The test, Mm. you you can't vary from how you administer the test. And at the end of the day, they write a report and they're, that's it, Mm. they're done. Um, I was a different school psychologist in the sense that I'm also a licensed therapist, and so I have a lot of issues with, um, I need to know what's really going on. So I went back into the classroom with those children who I could not identify as having a problem, but the teachers kept complaining there's something wrong. And I went into the classroom and I saw that these children were actually having difficulty performance performing, but the standardized test that we use as school psychologists to identify and then be able to provide services wasn't picking up their problems. My question, why? What's going on? And at 
luckily at that point for me, there was this transition as I was saying, what's happening? What's going on? And I followed these children from elementary school to middle school to high school. Um, as a school psychologist, I oversaw the counselors and psychs who were working with these children in middle school and high school as well. And there was a sense that these problems did not go away and it affected their lives. And it was important to just figure out what was happening and what was going on. Um, and I was offered a position then to leave the school districts <laughs> where I was working with children from kindergarten through high school and start a program for adults with learning disabilities or the first program for adults with learning disabilities at a university level. And that's, that's what I wanted. This gave me my population that I could look at and say, what's happening? What's going on for them that we're not able to pick up or address? And, you know, these were, first of all, there were adults anywhere from 21 years of age. Some of them were as old as 45, but trying to still get classes and pass classes at a university level. Um, and that, so you couldn't say it was mat a maturational, the problem I was looking at. They were all over 18, so you couldn't say, you know, that it's maturational. You couldn't say it was motivational. They tried two to three times harder in school. They were longer hours, harder. It took them longer. And to finally make it to a four-year university, they may be staying up till 2, 3 a.m. in the morning to get their work done, that other people get done at a reasonable time. Um, they were very highly motivated. So it was a good group to study and to look at. <laughs> this was my population <laughs> that I wanted to know. What's happening to you guys? And what aren't we picking up? And it's, you know, I felt personally like, we need to figure out something for you. We can't just say, oh, well, the tests don't show anything. Um, and um, they were great. They helped, they worked with me. And we first did a lit search and looked at anything that the literature had said or had purported to say would help children with and adults with reading and learning problems. Um, and we tried them all out again for ourselves. Um, and one of the things that had been suggested and were used was red-green glasses um, and a red overlay. And the concept here was that you needed a dominant eye in order to be able to read well. And red-green blocked that eye without having to cover it. And they were reading through red glasses on one eye and a red overlay. And the person who brought them in said, oh, yeah, I used this and I tried it and it didn't help. But one of the other students was standing behind her and looked over her shoulder and she said to me, Helen, look, it's not perfect, but it's a little bit better. Things aren't moving as much on the page. And that was the breakthrough. And we all went over to the theater department, got every possible theatrical gel, put mm -hmm. it on. Yeah, well, ours look, yeah, those are the theatrical gels. <laughs> and put them down on the floor in my office. And I had about 24 students in that initial group. And they went and picked an overlay that looked better and felt better. And then they read for a month with it and kept a journal. 
and documented for me what happened. Did anything change? Did it get better? Did it get worse? And they all came back and said, it's great. We're reading longer. It's much more comfortable. And our comprehension was better. And I thought, oh, you know, I was very proud of myself and said, this is great. <laughs> and they went, but. And I said, what do you mean, but? They said, but we can't use it to read things off of whiteboards, um, which we have problems with. We have problems with depth perception in our environment. And so what they did is went on and listed for me all the other areas of difficulty. It's like, okay, you change this. Now go ahead and make all the rest of this better. <laughs> um, like the little kids who say to mom, mom, I hurt my knee. Come help me. <laughs> That's how I felt. And it was like a challenge for me. And I thought, okay, if color is working, if we put it down on the page, what happens when we use it and they look through the color and I make up glasses. And what I found is that the color was different once they looked through the color. And it became a whole different process to determine what color they needed to wear. It was totally different. Than so, the so, color. so everybody had their own color that seemed to make a difference to them. Yeah. And you're saying mm -hmm. as well that you kind of, in a way, discovered this by accident. Mm hmm yeah. Well, yeah. well, by a accident and two, the feedback from my adult clients, <laughs> they took me on this journal and journey, and I have found that to be true in terms of every population I worked with. Um, I work with the we work with the autistic population, those with autism, because Donna Williams, who has now passed on, has written eight books. Um, is a great advocate, but has really severe difficulties. She will not speak in public. You have to write it out for her. She will not talk to you on the telephone. Um, her depth perception is off. She has lots of issues and interpersonal issues. Anyway, I got a letter from her and she said, I read your first book and everything you talked about, I experienced and those in the autistic population that I know experience in their environment. How do we extend this to those who have autism? So then I had to design a whole bunch of new questionnaires and new ways of uh, testing them um, and started working with the autistic population. Then, you know, all these different groups came on board. We have um, <clears throat> the military here. We have a lot of military men men and women who have served in Iraq and Afghanistan and have experienced significant blast injuries and numerous numbers of blast injuries um, and concussions and head injuries. And they also were getting headaches and migraines and highlight sensitivity and the things that I had talked about. And there was one psychologist who worked with the group and recognize that they were suffering from a lot of the same things that I've been talking about um, for, my ch for the children and adults that we were dealing with, at that time, primarily reading problems. Mm. And she said, you know, you need, let's see if this will help them with their constant and chronic headaches and migraines, difficulty with depth perception, anxiety, irritability, you know, and it broadened the array of what kinds of symptoms and who we could deal with. And um, 
So I had to design a whole new way of testing them because they were so severe. I had to design a whole new questionnaire for them that was applicable for them. That's what I've done for every single group. Um, and now we've seen over 660 military men and women who have had headaches and migraines constantly and consistently um, because of last injuries. That then took us into the concussion and head injury population in general, and especially the sports population. I did say to you, I wanted to just ask you a few questions about you being the nosy person that I am, right? But Oh, you can be nosy. It's okay. okay. We've been talking for a while. <laughs> Well, it's one nosy person to another then. Um, <laughs> um, I, I'm, well, see, I, I'm a big fan. You said earlier on, you're, you know, back when you were initially investigating this with the first batch of students, that like you're, you're curious and you, you were asking, to, you want to make sure you ask the right questions. And in my job, that's very important as well. I think it's critical. You have to have an open mind and ask the right questions and not, and, you know, to have that open mind. So you're obviously very curious, but I was saying to you, like for you to kind of, have reached the amount of people that you have to in a way to be still you know, to be not recognized by the conventional system and so you're kind of fighting, fighting against the mainstream in a way but despite that you've still made a massive impact uh, an impact that won't that that is going to move forever um so either you're very persistent or you're very stubborn so or are you both are you persistent are you stubborn what are you um I think I'm highly motivated in the sense that I know what we can do every single day because I'm still seeing clients four days a week. Yeah. So I won't give up seeing clients, although then I spend another three days, <laughs> my weekends doing the other things that I need to be doing. Um, but I'm highly motivated to make change. I know the kinds of changes that we can make. Um, and I get a lot of satisfaction in terms of changing lives and so that i'm not going to let this die i'm not going to um it has to be out there i mean we're helping only a small percent of the population who we could be helping who are still struggling who are dropping out of college and not even going to college because of this who have low self-esteem um and think that they have a problem um I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm highly motivated <laughs> to get this out there and make sure it gets out and there. Has that motivation grown over time or was it always there from the very beginning? Yeah, that's my personality. It's always been there from the very beginning. And um, was, was that there when you come into your career as an educational psychologist? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, I was there saying every other school psychologist just tested and wrote up their reports and walked away. That's not what I did. I went back into the classroom. I talked to the teachers. I watched the child perform in the classroom. That made the difference between those that walked away and myself. And, and why, so why did know. you why did you pick that field, Helen, in the first place? I'm just curious. Like, was it in your family, or what attracted you to that field in the first place? No, not at all. My mother argued with me the whole time I was in high school you're not going to do this. You just need to be a teacher. And I'm going, no, that's not what I want to be. I want to be a psychologist. (laughs) Um, So what took me into that field? I guess myself, my own interest, and then getting lucky breaks right throughout. 
um, I worked in, when I graduated from high school, I went to Bellevue Hospital. I don't, may not have a name over there, but it has the largest psychiatric wards and they have a children's psychiatric ward. Okay. And I walked in there and said, I want to work. I have the summer. I don't want to work for you. So they gave me the children's psychiatric ward and I handled it on my own. Um, what age were you then? Tried, huh? What age were you then? I'm sorry, what? What age were you then? Uh, when you graduated from high school? Wow. 17, okay. 16, 17. And every time they gave me assistant, the kids would come up with their fists like this and go, I'm going to beat you up. And phew, the assistant was gone. <laughs> I handled it the whole time. So, um, but I loved the kids. I loved them dearly. And I did things with them that you weren't supposed to be doing. And they, they were just fabulous. Um, and when I left, I went to the head of the department, the head of whoever it was that was running it. And I said, you need to replace me with at least, you know, two people. I'm going to college. And she said, what do you mean you're going to college? I thought you had graduated from college. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd walked in and obviously you were so confident and assertive. She just assumed, oh, she must have the qualifications. So, so that is funny. <laughs> you know, I did that my sophomore year of college. I wanted to do um, research on schizophrenogenic family patterns. Now, National Institute is the hardest, hardest, you know, foundation to give grants. I mean, you don't just walk, you know, write it up and get a grant. So, in my sophomore year, that's what I did. I said, I want to study schizophrenogenic family patterns and got a three-year grant to study that. I mean, so my whole life has been one of, this is what I want, I'm going to go for it, and I'm going to do it. Um, and yeah. I don't think I think in traditional ways. And I, I always ask questions, and I, I'm not satisfied until I figure out what's going on. It's not enough to say the child isn't working hard enough. It's not enough for me to hear the fact, oh, they're labeled as autistic. Um, none of those things seem to work for me. It's always the why question. What's going on? What haven't we identified? What do we still need to look at? It's never a closed issue for me. Um, and why do you think you think like that? Was that there something in your past? Do you think that that was innate in you? Was it something that was triggered by something else? Why do you, why do you think like that? I think it's innate. That's who I am. Um, and I never thought twice about it, and I never hesitated. So it must be just a part of who I am. <laughs> you know. Um, very, very interesting, yeah. Yeah, well, it does seem like yeah. it is you, because you do have a, seem to have a clear sense of who you are, and you're following, as you say, I see what I want, I go after it, that's it. You, you mentioned earlier on, and just trying to, there's a kind of a, a link here, I think, to me that's around the Ireland side. You mentioned um, people who had maybe before they're diagnosed with Ireland, perhaps having damaged self-esteem because of what they're, they've gone through and trying to, mm -hmm. as you said, they're trying to live in a world that really doesn't in any way suit them to a degree until mm -hmm. they get the spectral filters. So I'm curious Obviously, when I'm listening to you tell your story about yourself, it was clear. It sounds like a woman who had a good dose of self-esteem. That's what okay. it sounds. That, that's what it sounds like. I'm not. I'm not saying right. you're obviously human, so you'll have your moments. 
But then if you've got somebody on the Ireland side, let's just say they had damaged self-esteem and then they get diagnosed and then all of a sudden, oh, that's help. Have you, is there support for those people to maybe correct the self-esteem or do you find that that fixes itself over time with the spectral filters going in place? Does that make sense? Yeah, because, you know, I'm a licensed therapist um, and I do it. I'm not sure all my other diagnostician do that. I deal with that self-esteem issue when I'm working with my the children and adults because I'm still doing testing. I I feel strongly that there's places to go in terms of this technology and I'm not going to lose the contact with the clients themselves. So I'm still working with clients three days a week and seeing them. Um, and I know I deal with that self-concept issue all the time when I'm working with the, the yeah, client. Yeah, I would imagine. It, it, yeah, it's an. I think it's, a, well, as a therapist, I think it's an incredibly important issue. And for them to understand that it wasn't their fault. Yeah. And yeah. there was nothing that they could do about it to make it better themselves or change it for themselves. And they also need to understand this is what it was like for the majority of the population. And they go, God, they had it so much easier. And I go, mm, yeah, they did. But then you have to look at, I worked so much harder. And I said, yeah, but that's good for you and your self-concept that you can work that hard. Um, now you'll get bigger payoffs for working that hard. And you don't always have to be working that hard. Now you're finding out how really bright you are. And that's the key issue is for them to understand that they are really bright, but something that was, you know, they inherited or they acquired through a head injury has inhibited their being able to show their brightness, their capabilities, and what they can do. And it's an important concept. Yeah, well, well, I don't know if you've come across a, I think he's a Canadian psychologist, Nathaniel Brandon. Maybe you know that name. I don't know if you know. No. But he, just he, but he, I, I, I was reading something a few months ago about it. Just said, from his point of view, self-concept is destiny. So when you talk like that, I mean that they're lucky to have you there, because to get that clarity of self-concept, particularly when you adjust your sense of what you are, who you are. I mean that is everything. That is everything. Yeah. Um, and it's scary when you do changes. I didn't mean to interrupt Shane. No, you're fine. But when you do changes like that, um, it's scary. Yeah. It really is scary. I'm not sure that I'm not going to fall on my face again. I give them permission to fall on their face again. I understand. And this is, you know, you don't make changes overnight. And it doesn't come that easily. There's going to be ups and downs. But each time you try, it gets a little bit easier and a little bit better for you. Brilliant. Um, yeah. So, so at the moment, I don't know if I'm up to date, Helen, but it says that you have 100 and over 130 Erling clinics around the world. Mm -hmm. Pretty so, much, we keep training. So, <laughs> I saw, at the I, moment, I, at the moment, 130 and climbing. Um, so, is it pretty much on every continent? Um, I think so. I think you're right. And yeah. in addition to that, we have people who only do the overlay, so they're screeners, and we have like seven to 9,000 screeners that oh. we train worldwide that have been trained. Okay, so you've got the screener, and then you've got a diagnostician, is that it? Yeah, the screeners can identify, so we'd like to have screeners in the school districts um, that they can identify them and learn how to 
diagnose what is appropriate overlay color for them or overlays. Some people need three, four, five layers of different overlays. Um, And then they're referred on to the diagnosticians. And all the diagnosticians can do screenings as well. But there are those two layers, levels. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Well, I'm going to close out here. Um, Again, just to remind anybody who's watching and listening that the website is erlen.com. That is probably the single best place to go. There's a, there's a different self-test, loads of information there. And I, I suppose I'll finish where we started, where we said that the tagline is where the science of color transforms lives. Um, but I think we should add in that persistence transforms lives as well. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> as a father, I just want to, because I have the opportunity, I want to say thank you for your persistence. But also as a human, I want to say thank you for persistence because you've definitely done the world a great service. It's not a small thing. Um, and so I just want to say thank you very much. Thank you, Shane, for helping get the word out. I mean, if everyone who does, who, anyone who does that has my love and undying gratitude. Yeah, well, absolutely. No problem. So that is the amazing Helen Erlen. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I hope you got food for thought. Uh, with regards to Erlen syndrome, whether it's for you or somebody you love or somebody that you're connected to. Um, I would ask again that you share this with at least one, if not two people, maybe even more. Um, if it's 25% of the population, as Helen says, um, well, then there's somebody you definitely know that doesn't realize that this may well be part of perhaps why they're struggling. Um, it's funny, on reflection, after the interview, you know, one of the things that came across very clearly to me in talking to Helen even before and after what we recorded was just how much she loves her patients and she loves the people and she still works. She was telling me three days a week in her clinic, she sees patients and you can see it. Um, and it's, it's lucky for the planet, lucky for us, lucky for me as a parent and as in our family. We're very grateful that someone like that just cared enough to stick with it, to be persistent, but yet still, despite whatever 40 years later and millions of people impacted, there still is so many people, millions of people who haven't yet heard about Erlen syndrome. Um, I did actually also, Helen had said to me afterwards that, that nobody had asked before, but why does she think the way she thinks? And I guess if you've listened to any of my previous podcasts, you know that that's what I do. I, I get people to look inside and see how their thinking impacts on what they do and on the and, and and the world in general and their own world, um, and who knows? Maybe Helen will come back at some other point to tell me. She said she's going to have to think about now. Well, why do I think the way I think there? But clearly, it was very strong in her, and she's aware that she thinks in a very diverse lateral way. She doesn't accept no. She's always asking why, and with the end result in mind because of this immense care. And I think there's great inspiration in that for anybody who is persisting with their goal or their vision, experiencing setbacks and pushbacks and non-acceptance. All of that um, is in Helen's story. And for me, I was saying to her afterwards that for me personally, I see a parallel between um, the growth of the organization and her reach with with Erlen syndrome and helping people with the Erlen method and a parallel then with her own story of just against the odds. and sticking through all that, all the setbacks and, the, and being very persistent and focused 
And she said she's highly motivated to make a difference. And if ever there was an example of somebody's thinking and their mind just being very focused on impacting people, Helen Ireland definitely is it. So <clears throat> again, thanks for listening. If you're listening this far, and please do spread the world word and help increase the awareness of Ireland. Bye-bye.